It is the season of snow, cold, winter, and ice. At least for part of the globe. As such, we thought we would talk about the effort to bring the experience and importance of our polar ice regions to the masses. Antarctica and the Arctic Circle are habitats far remote from the majority of humanity, but are directly impacted by human activity through emissions, plastic pollution, and melting. The poles are also so alien to the average human experience that it can be hard for people to describe it, turning it into a you-had-to-be-there moment. Today we speak to two writers who were sent to the poles in hopes of inspiring them to capture and communicate this magical experience and surreal location. All on this episode of Ocean Science Radio. Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. I'm shark scientist, aquanaut, and aspiring badass, Francis Farabaugh. And I am ocean and climate communications specialist, Andrew Kornblatt. Antarctica and the Arctic are fragile and beautiful ecosystems that help regulate our climate. At the same time, they're also one of the most dangerous and mentally challenging locations known to humanity. Photographers and documentary filmmakers have tried to capture it, but from eyewitness accounts, it is hard to capture the scale and power of the landscape, the stillness and silence. Much of the experience simply gets lost in translation. Today, we're speaking to two people. Let's let them introduce themselves. Sure. And thank you for having me, by the way. My name is Ryan Sloan. I am a writer of fiction and nonfiction, and I'm on faculty at UC Berkeley's College Writing Programs. My name is Shannon Sterone, and I am a freelance writer. Shannon is kind of selling herself short. She's been on the same beat for the last nine years, with her byline appearing in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Washington Post, Popular Science, Wired, Esquire, and more. Remind me, Shannon, what topics do you normally cover? I usually cover space, space science, a little bit of climate change, but usually all over the map with space exploration. So both Shannon and Ryan are professional writers, and both got sent to the poles. Shannon got sent to the edge of Antarctica in the south, and Ryan went to the Arctic. Here is Ryan. Yeah, it was a program in 2019. The program is called The Arctic Circle. It describes itself in the most wonderful way as a, quote, expeditionary residency program. So it's a deliberately interdisciplinary mix of artists and scientists and architects and educators from all over the world. Really, it, it takes place on the land and sea and I guess the, the glacial snow of Svalbard, which is an archipelago in the high Arctic northwest of Norway. So how did this program come about? What was the impetus? What was it trying to do? Yeah, it's you know, it's trying to provide access in some ways to an area that is incredibly remote and beautiful and facilitate for, you know, for a variety of people working in their craft to be able to sort of understand in a, in a longer period of time in an immersive way, you know, what is happening in the Arctic. So this is, of course, as we see um, the, the extraordinarily troubling ways in which the Arctic is rapidly changing year by year, but also, you know, some of the some of the subtler uh, kinds of qualities about the Arctic. So what it's meant to do is to immerse the participants in this environment. And oh, by the way, it's on a masted tall ship sailing around Svalbard. Shannon's trip to the south went a slightly different path. 
Yeah, so that trip came about in a completely shocking and strange way. Viking Cruises, which is a commercial cruise line, they often invite travel writers and journalists on trips to show them this is what we're doing on this cruise, just sort of standard. Science writers are not usually invited on things like that. One, because there's a conflict of interest element there, but also that's just not something we ever get to do. So when I got the email inviting me, it was you know, I had to talk to some editors about it, but they asked if I wanted to go because this was a science e cruise. That was the words. One, because we we're going to Antarctica, but also because the cruise line has a partnership with NOAA and NASA where they monitor weather, they launch weather balloons, they do some climate monitoring, and they do some like really sort of basic marine biology experiments on board. There was a nice science element to it, which was great. For Ryan, his desire to go to the poles was buried in a long, unrealized dream. I grew up wanting to be a marine biologist. I was obsessed with Cousteau. At some point, I shifted to writing with the idea that I could flexibly, you know, be part of different kinds of experiences along the way and write about them, and especially uh, from the vantage point of fiction. So I'm working on a novel that, you know, in its earliest form, you know, has sort of changed over time, but ultimately it's a historical magical realist novel set in Goldbrush, San Francisco, and it follows a young con artist and her friends, and they live out in the ghost fleet of abandoned ships, just hundreds of abandoned ships in Yerba Buena Cove. So that was the impetus, right? It was that I just thought it would be cool to live and work with other artists for weeks on this tall ship in the Arctic Ocean, but also for future projects and and frankly, just in general, I think there's something really exciting and complicated about the history of expeditions in the Arctic and Antarctica. For both Shannon and Ryan, the experiences were life-changing and picking anecdotes to share was relatively difficult. Oh God, there are so many. Okay, well, I'll start from the beginning, I guess. The first is really the silence, which unfortunately is not something that you can really communicate. It's a silence that you really have to experience. I think that there is a like this unsaid understanding when you're there is that that's the one piece of land on the planet that didn't evolve with humans on it. The humans that live there on the science bases have to try really hard to survive there. It's so it's like it's a different kind of quiet. There's no background noise pollution. There's no, there's nothing. There's just nothing. For Ryan, there were too many experiences to share. I want to uh, narrow this down to let's say six or seven, but the reality is there are so many. And I think before I even start, I think one of the really common reactions when people come back from an environment such as this is to describe the difficulty of of ascribing language to this experience. I think in some ways, even the visual artists in our expedition found it very difficult to to try and and process what they what they had been through. And that I'll give into some experiences to kind of contextualize it a little bit, but it took me a while, I have to say. It absolutely has stuck with me. You know, for writers, Generally, when we think of writing residencies, we tend to think of experiences where, you know, you're maybe you're, you're working on, on a project then, right? And maybe you're on your own and, and you've got a little desk and you get some work done in the evening. Maybe you meet up with other writers and you have a drink and you talk about what you've done. And I sort of expected naively that that's what this would be. 
And this is, in fact, a, an experiential residency. So it was three life-changing adventures a day, just me and my Arctic muck boots, which they required very wisely that we all have, and many layers of clothing, although not as much clothing as you should need for the high Arctic in summertime. The crew on the ship of the Antigua, it's always the Antigua, uh, it's a very, very capable crew on the ship itself and piloting rubber Zodiac rafts. But one of the really memorable things is that the Arctic Circle Residency also makes sure that there are extraordinarily knowledgeable guides. And for our expedition, led by Sarah Gerritz, you know, these are badass female guides with rifles, setting a perimeter for polar bears whenever we made landfall. And all the guides are artists or scientists themselves who know the terrain, who have a deep understanding of, of what's at play in this environment. Here are just a few things that, that, as I was thinking about it today, have absolutely stuck with me. Being on this very small spit of land as a glacier calved right in front of me and watching you know, just experiencing that moment by filming it. And my friends are watching it. And then all of a sudden watching the, the water go away and then suddenly start to just devour the land that we are on, right? Trying to, you know, scramble for higher and higher ground. But the, the majesty of that moment, the difficulty of describing that moment, even now juxtaposed with, uh, I'm going to get very wet and very cold very, very quickly. Certainly, there's the interesting juxtaposition in moments where you can experience something, you know, on the order of the sublime, right? The Fata Morgana visual effect, where it's it's difficult to see where the horizon is. Just to my left is this really depressing stretch of trash that has been washed onto the spit from a variety of places that is sort of gathered there, right? But, uh, you know, quite possibly from Siberia and just dead birds tangled in plastic, right? And so we were trying to pull that. And one of our cohort was actually building artwork, you know, a sort of uh, found sculpture, right? From some of these pieces in the other direction, having gathered bags and bags and bags of trash on that day, a group of walrus, right? Sunning themselves and you can smell them and hear them before you even see them just you know, utterly uh, oblivious uh, to us. And of course, we trying to keep a, a safe distance you know, from them. We had the most wonderful experience of visiting the abandoned Soviet ghost town, this mining town, Pyramiden, which has been, you know, folks have, have gone back and tried to revitalize it a little bit, but uh, an extraordinary walk through history. Uh, we went to Nialisand, the research station that is further north than any research station, most things are the furthest north when you visit Svalbard, by the way. It's the furthest north, Circle K. It's the furthest north of so many different things. And to that, I'd say the final experience that really sticks with me, if I had to narrow it down, there was a moment when we were closer to the North Pole than any town, right? Almost to the very northern tip of Svalbard. And one of our cohort, who was a photographer, was using a submersible and it was tethered to the ship's electrics. And for whatever reason, the entire ship had an electrical short. And at that moment, the pack ice is kind of crushing in. Now, listen, it's 24-hour sunlight, right? It's this extraordinary effect where you go a little bit crazy anyway. And as the crew is working for many, many hours to try and get the electrical back working because there is no wind and, and we're getting increasingly sort of caught in the pack ice, the rest of us, unable to be of any use, just started playing poker 
with gummy bears as currency at two in the morning. And I led a fencing clinic on the deck. And, uh, you know, we climbed up into the uh, crow's nest to try and see what we could see. But yeah, trapped in the pack ice, gradually maneuvering the ship out of the pack ice and keeping good humor while also going a little bit crazy. That, That absolutely sticks with me. In the 2012 documentary, Chasing Ice, they actually filmed the largest calving event known to be caught on camera. This was a piece of ice the size of Manhattan. The scale is mind-blowing. The scale is mind-blowing to fathom when you are there in person. But on camera, a lot of that experience gets lost in translation. For Shannon, the silence, the scale, and the odd familiarity of the place really affected her. Yeah, so it was, I think the first thing for me was really, the silence was very shocking to me. And I think that that's, it's kind of an empty thing to say, really, because you can go to the woods, you can go somewhere else in nature and feel the silence there. But this was something very otherworldly. I think that seeing the ice, because of how that environment is built, it's like a lot of white, a lot of mountains, when you see pictures of Antarctica, you can't really get a sense of scale of things. And pulling up in these Zodiac boats alongside these icebergs that were, you can't tell how big they are. And it's like, oh, that's an entire city block, New York City, or that's a house, or that's bigger than our ship. It's, they, they're so massive that they feel like they have a presence. It's very unnerving and powerful. And I was, I didn't know what to expect, but I was not expecting to feel the way that made me feel. I felt like it's arrogant for me to say this, but I'm going to say it. I felt like I knew the place a little bit. You know, it's like we had an introduction and I wanted to learn everything I could learn about it or just see pictures of it. See, I missed the ice. When I came back, all I dreamt about was ice for weeks. And this is a fairly common phenomenon. When people go to these remote, almost alien spaces on Earth, they leave an impression on the visitor. And apparently there's even a name for it. Yes. Yeah. And I I didn't really think about that much when I got back. It was a lot of people who'd been to Antarctica saying, you've got polar fever. Like, it's polar fever. You're just going to be obsessed with going back now. And But, you know, I write about space. I've talked to a lot of astronauts. I've talked and written about the overview effect for years. And I would never give myself the credit of saying, oh, I've experienced something similar. But honestly, the symptoms are very similar. For people going to space, there is a phenomenon known as the overview effect, where the experience of seeing our planet and the expanse of the universe, uh, uh, sorry, where the experience of seeing our planet in the expanse of the universe so small and complete changes that person. Spacegoers felt this obligation and responsibility to take care of that fragile pale blue dot forever. And hope during the early days of the space tourism trend that Bezos, Branson, and Musk have been stoking for a while, that when we send super rich people up into space, they will care more about the Earth and want to take care of it. But does the overview effect impact people going to the poles? Does seeing the place make you care about it more? And can that translate into the arts? Here's Shannon. 
it took a couple of days. It took going to different locations to feel one. It's like the magnitude of that place. It's the power. It's this, there is a, like that animal part of your brain that knows this place will kill you within seconds in all sorts of ways. So you are constantly humbled. You're constantly thinking about, you know, am I going to step in the wrong place? Don't fall out of the boat. That type of seal likes to attack humans. The weather changes in seconds. I mean, it will be sunny and beautiful. Seconds later, you're in an extreme blizzard with 60 mile an hour gusts. I mean, it is a place that is so clearly not for humans. So clearly we should not be there. And it felt very intrusive. You know what it is? It's like what I would imagine going to space would be like, is it stripped away any sense of all of the superficial stuff that means to be a human being in our world, right? Like none of that matters. None of it mattered. It was, I am an animal in this place and I'm bearing witness to something I have no right to bear witness to. I have to be careful. It's nothing external And I don't mean physically or superficially. I mean, the concept of what we think is valuable in humanity doesn't matter there. It was the most liberating, beautiful, profound experience of my life. Yes. In fact, I'm going back in 2024 on an icebreaker myself. I think that it was really early in the 2019 trip. I was you know, with a couple other people, very thoughtfully, the the Antigua, the ship, has a little bar. <laughs> and, you know, we were gathering, a couple of us were gathered there, and we were trying to process maybe the first day or two of what we'd experienced. And there's this guy who had been before on a previous expedition, and he started speaking in, in, in somewhat haunted language about how he really hadn't been able to get out of his head, right? You know, the overview effect, you know, that that astronauts famously experience, right? This idea of awe, but also something like transcendence or transformation. And it was funny in the first couple of days, I thought, God, oh, that guy's taking it really seriously. You know, it's like, seems seems like he's really you know, processing this on a, on a deeper emotional level. And by the end of it, and in the weeks and months afterward, I realized that what the guides had told us was very true, that, that Svalbard stays with you in this really profound way. You know, I think about how Iceland experienced, you know, that wave of tourism where people really wanted to be in touch with and to visit something really extraordinary and how in in many ways that that becomes really problematic, right? Um, You know, we think about this, this issue of climate despair, right? That nothing can be done and it's irreversible. And of course, there are articles all the time providing clear and clear evidence of this. So this idea of everyone going to the Arctic is probably not ideal on a number of levels. But I would say that for those who feel called to go, to do it in a responsible way, perhaps with a group like this, and to bring it back to the world, to, to communicate in whatever whatever your chosen craft is, I think it, there's a real opportunity for us to, to share some of, of that transformation, right? That that does stay with you in this really profound way. And I, uh, I don't know, I'm, I, for one, am very grateful that I had the chance to go. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to going back. Ryan may have treated the trip with a bit more blasé and reckless adventure. When he wasn't leading his compatriots on fencing clinics, 
he and some of his fellow adventurers took a icy plunge. I did. I did. Uh, one of my crewmates, Linda Stupart, they instigated a, a summer solstice dip in which we launched ourselves from the ship into the water. Uh, and, you know, one of the guides was sitting in a Zodiac raft to haul us out in case we were even more foolish than we were. Uh, and I got to say, it is uh, exhilarating. And also, it's all the, all the warmth in your body is immediately punched right out of you. And I know it's it's quite a thing. You know, you, you're disoriented under the water. You can't dip a toe in or you would never go in. You just got to just go in and then back up. Of course, I, I learned later that Linda had been practicing in British lakes that were nearly freezing for a while. Uh, the rest of us were just, it was our first time and we yelped like like newborns. I've seen that. I've always wanted to do it. Do it on all those crews and I, it pops up on you sort of like, you know, traveling Instagram and stuff. People jumping right. into the oh, Arctic. Yeah. Adventure and yelping from plunging in Arctic waters aside, the poles are environments that, as we mentioned, mess with your mind. The size and scale of the place definitely plays a part in it, but it isn't just that. Back to Shannon. There's this weird ocular phenomenon in Antarctica, which they kind of warned us about, but because there's no particulates in the air, I mean, this is the cleanest water on earth, the cleanest air on earth. Your sense of distance of things is not accurate. So you might see something and think, oh, that's really close and it's miles away. Or one of the nights we thought we that the ship was running straight into this massive iceberg and we just kept sailing towards it. And we started this game where we thought, okay, we have to stay here and wait for the captain to just pick a side, pick or go around. And it turned out that we had been speeding towards it the whole time, but it was so far away. And it seemed like it was just right there. And it wasn't, it, it does strange things to your brain and the way that the light behaves and reflects off of the ice. It's definitely not something that we, it is just a completely different visual phenomenon being there it was very strange. And the way that the light changes, if the sun shifts just a little bit, a giant chunk of ice can be the brightest white you've ever seen blinding, blinding. You can't even look at it. And then all of a sudden it's purple. And then all of a sudden it's blue and then it's neon blue and then it's white again and then it's gray and the landscape is shifting so constantly that there's nothing about that place you can trust. You cannot trust yourself because we're just animals in this massive place that it, the whole place is trickery. That was fascinating. Like I could feel my brain trying to rationalize what I was seeing and the distances and it just doesn't work. Like you're just powerless, everything there. You may have caught earlier when Ryan mentioned Fata Morgana. Here he is to describe what that actually is. Yeah, no, it's it's in this context, when you look at the horizon and it's difficult to see where to really make any ability to distinguish, right? Between above the horizon and below the horizon, this kind of optical uh, visual effect that happens. Really extraordinary. There are so many things about the subtlety of color and the kind of raw intensity of the landscape, you know, where almost no life can grow, even though you can still see, you know, extraordinary amount of wildlife in the waters. And of course, yes, polar bears and Arctic foxes and others. But yeah, anyway, that's the visual effect. Remember that Shannon's trip was part of a cruise filled with vacationers and brings to mind billionaires who rocket themselves and others to space. 
Okay, so where does that put us in the whole overview effect thing? What is humans' place within this area? It is not a place to take lightly. And I think that any opportunity Antarctica will get to remind you of that, it will take, there is a an obliviousness that that place has to us. That is what's so humbling. You don't exist. You are a blip. You are nothing. It is like if you could shrink the universe down to a continent. So I think that, yeah, the barrier of entry is just lower. And the longer I've been back, the more I think that it should be much higher, if not almost impossible. Like I would love for you to be able to go there and to have you know what I'm talking about. The feelings to have my family go and go, oh my God, I understand. And at the same time, it's like, if we could just airdrop people in for like two days and then like get out, (laughs) just something. But I think that in some ways might force us to think about that there are just some places that should be off limits to us experiencing pleasure, to us experiencing adventure, to, I don't know, to having that romance. And I think it's easy for me to say, easier for me to say that as someone who's been, but damn, is it clear after going there? Like we just don't have a right, don't have a right. So every time we go, it's a risk. It's a privilege. I think that that experience matches up with anyone that goes to Antarctica or to the Arctic as a tourist. You are either already someone that cares about climate change and cares about the environment, or if you're someone that really does not care, I think the odds of that person being completely switched to an activist or a climate activist is probably low. It's not impossible, but it's probably low, especially for Antarctica. There's a romance to, I want to, I want to be like Shackleton. I want to be, you know, like Robinson. I want to be like Scott. I want to go possibly die there. Even when I came back, I was like, I want to go do a winter. I want to go all in. There's a recklessness that that place inspires in people. Recklessness, like jumping into the Arctic waters for a quick swim. But the, the ability to care. And I will say this, which I saw people on that cruise. One who just like, they don't care. They don't care. They're not there for the climate. They're not there because they care about the climate. They weren't leaving caring about the climate. I think that that would be true whether you're going 50 kilometers up to space, quote unquote, or to either pole. I think the that issue of how do you get people to care about a place they've never been or will ever go to is a greater issue of our general human values because it's how do you learn to care about someone who's in India that you'll never meet, you'll never go there? How do you care about how your climate decisions and your policy and your country affects a family living by the water in India? It's like that that's the issue is we have grown so isolated and so individualistic that we've stopped knowing how to care about something that has nothing to do with us or we think has nothing to do with us. So when film, pictures, even VR doesn't adequately transmit the feeling of being there, how can we bring these experiences to people to get them to connect without actually having them physically there? Yeah, it's such a great it's such a great question. You know, I think so often when we talk about these kinds of issues around privilege, you know, the intense resources, right, that 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 it takes frankly to be in some of these extreme environments, 
you know, there are also there are environmental costs and there are human costs. And that, of course, is a, is a really complicated thing. And I certainly wouldn't want to be in the business of gatekeeping who gets to go, right, and who doesn't. But I will absolutely say that many people who went on our expedition had a variety of funding. And some folks even did, you know, crowdfunding and tried to find ways to get grants. And I, I was the beneficiary of grants and fellowships as well. It's it's an expensive proposition, you know, to, to crew a ship, uh, to go up there in the first place. And I think my only hope for the ultra wealthy is that somehow naively they don't see how deeply sexy the Arctic is, that they're off for the next big thing. But of course, I mean, the reality is the kind of art and journalism and writing that seeks to really understand and communicate what is so important and what is so distinctive and strange and wonderful about these environments. I think those are things that we can support immediately. Uh, there are you know, great historical novels, uh, The Terror and The North Water are two of my favorites. The naturalist writer, Barry Lopez, right? Uh, his book, Arctic Dreams. There are um, recent novels, right? That I think are, are, are pretty interesting. Uh, Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. How High We Go in the Dark, Sequoia Nagamatsu, uh, not entirely in the Arctic, but a bit. And of course, uh, my favorite uh, was just something that I discovered on the ship itself. It's this tiny little pamphlet put out by Penguin called Arctic Survival, put out for RAF, you know, British, British sailors to understand how to survive. I think there are so many ways that we can think about the kinds of art and work that communicates what's important. However you find it, whatever those modes are for you that that are really exciting for you. Yeah, support support your local artists who who care about these environments and who have who have done the work. Um, they will be very grateful. Both Ryan and Shannon haven't been able to fully write and follow up with their experiences. Shannon shared some thoughts and highlights on social media, but apparently had a hard time filling out the notebooks and journals that she brought. Both told me that they are looking to use their experiences in the books they are working on. The message from both is the need for people to really experience these locations firsthand to get the full perspective. We often talk about these environments that are alien and seemingly unknowable. You know, the province of science fiction or, you know, out in the stars. And I think there is also something very true about what is beneath the waters and what is at the farthest reaches of, you know, where, where humans really cannot survive very easily on our own. And there is, in fact, so much beauty and wonder and, yes, strangeness in those places. And I think any anyone who listens to this podcast uh, is already on board with that sort of a declaration. But just to say, yes to all the things that are that are strange, beautiful, and wonderful in the remote areas of the world. And also, if you can, if you have, have the opportunity, get on a masted ship sometime, <laughs> even, even a small one, get on, a, get on a sailboat and experience the pleasure and simultaneous terror of trying to uh, sail if you haven't grown up with it. It's, it's quite a thing. But going there is dangerous and harmful to the habitats you are visiting. Shannon, what are you going to do with your experiences? What do you want people to walk away from this podcast with? That's a really good and difficult question. I think, especially since I'm in the midst of doing book research and the things I've written about recently, the, the running theme actually in all of my work, if I look back, is connection. It's like this theme of connection. I think that an interesting moment that I had when I was there was 
not so much the first time I saw penguins and granted they're cute and it's so easy to just fall in love because they're adorable, but there was a, a moment on our last landing at Yankee Harbor and there was this blizzard and the weather was shifting and I was standing in the middle of the ice sort of adjacent to this penguin highway and all of these penguins were jumping out of the water. This is like the first time they've been on water in months because they've been out to sea eating and now they're coming on land to mate and make babies and raise their babies. And these hundreds and hundreds of penguins just kept jumping out of the water and running straight towards me and then running past me and some would stop at my feet and look up at me and make eye contact with me. And I was like sobbing <laughs> into my jacket and like it was a very powerful, beautiful moment. I felt connected for the first time in that moment to everything. That's a strange thing to say, but it made me really internalize the sort of thing I talk about all the time, which is we're all connected and we don't really think about or understand all of the ways that we're connected. But here are these animals. I'm standing in the midst of, they're carrying on with their business. They're gonna go mate, lay their eggs, make their nests, carry their pebbles. And I'm standing there watching them and I realized as far away as Antarctica seems, it was two days on a ship to Argentina. Like everything is not that far. Our planet is really tiny, truly, truly tiny. And I felt this beautiful moment of connection and also the terror of connection. And I think that that is, I don't know if there's something I could ever convey in my work or from what I've discovered on that trip is that that connection is very real and we're busy with our lives. We don't think about it. You can't feel it. You can't internalize it, but everything we do here, everything we do affects everything else. And I know that puts a lot more responsibility on us and how we operate, how we vote, what we do, how we purchase clothes, everything. But I felt sort of the weight of all my human decisions and all of the like big game I talk about connections when I saw the penguins and I looked at the ice and I thought oh my god nothing is separate we are one big earthly organism and it was just really spectacular and also when you think about it in terms of space which is what my beat usually is the odds that we all came into existence and we live on this little planet and I was standing on the ice and this penguin walked by and looked at me in the eyes and was this whole collective moment of everything that had to take place before then to be standing there. It's just, I think that that connection is the most beautiful thing about our existence. I really do. As scary as it is because we do have an impact. I just have a lot of unprocessed feelings about that trip. Yeah, I guess I would want people to know that everything they do has an impact. Even when we like despair and feel like it doesn't, it does. And there's a lot of power in that. These delicate locations are powerful and change those who visit there. You know that I personally have a deep pool there and have a bit of FOMO jealousy of Ryan and Shannon, but at the same time, I know that just by being there, I would be damaging something fragile and beautiful. Until there is a truly sustainable and impact-free way to do it, we need to send those who can capture the experience and translate it for others. So good luck to Ryan and Shannon in their next adventures to the polls. 
We look forward to reading the works that were inspired by their experiences. Big thanks to our guests and big thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share our podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. See you next time on an all-new episode of Ocean Science Radio. So is there anything you want to add to this about like your desire to go to the polls? Have you been to the polls? I I haven't. Uh, no, I relate a little bit to that experience that they're describing. Yeah, go ahead, please. Um, I've found it when you're in the middle of the ocean a little bit. And that's that's just it. It's just the horizon for forever. When there's kind of nothing between you and the horizon. And maybe this is amplified on a ship, especially if you're like on a smaller vessel, because the interior spaces of ships tend to be small and cramped. So there's this dichotomy between the open openness of the sea and, you know, kind of a cozy cabin or a a sort of a cramped galley. And when there's nothing between you and the horizon, you get this feeling on a really clear day, like you can almost see the curve of the earth. Not quite, but you can almost imagine that you could, you can tell that it's dropping away from you and that we're on the skin of a sphere. It gives you this feeling of being incredibly small, but also like larger than life. And the thing I connect to it the most is a lot of those, you get a lot of quotes about astronomers and how they feel when they study and they look at the stars how they feel incredibly big and incredibly small, kind of all at the same time, like they are inconsequential to the universe, but also they are the universe.